Heavenly Father, we thank You for this day and we thank You for all the things that You give to us, the life and breath and so many wonderful things that we can uh, wake up this morning and see Your hand and Your handiwork all around us in creation and that we can come and specifically have this day set aside, Your your day, Your Lord's day, to come and uh, be nourished by Your Word and strengthened and receive your good gifts that you have for us in Christ and with one another, that we can really uh, have this day as a, as a day of joy and gladness and rest from our weary pilgrimage as we go through this present evil age. So we pray, Lord, that you'd be with us and that we, as we learn about more about our unity in the gospel, that you would uh, strengthen us and encourage us in our lives. In your Son's name we ask. Amen. All right, so just by way of review, um, we've been going through the book of Galatians, and the last couple of weeks we kind of went through chapter 1 and the introduction and how specifically this letter came about and why Paul was writing it. And his not only was the message of the apostle attacked, as we saw, but also his ministry, and specifically how his credentials were coming under attack and why he brought his testimony out. It wasn't just for any, any old reason, but he was bringing his testimony in Galatians chapter 1 uh, for the very purpose of showing that he received this message right from Christ and that he didn't go to anyone to learn this message and it was, it was a radical thing that totally transformed his life. And he went from persecuting the church to now being one of the biggest missionaries and apostles for it. So the Judaizers are coming in and basically saying he didn't go to the base camp of Jerusalem and he didn't get the full gospel message that we got and were in line with the other apostles. And Paul, he's just preaching you know, the beginning of it. It's just free grace, everyone's in we have the full message. And so they were undermining his very apostolic message and saying that he was, he was just like, eh. Like he just had the beginning. But now we have the full thing. So we're going to come in and instruct you Christians in Galatia. So Paul is coming out and saying no. He's like, I received this whole thing from Christ and I went out into the desert and went out on my own and studied these things, had these things internalized and, and, and had time alone with the Lord so that that would transform my ministry. And then I went and made sure I got the right hand of fellowship and, and the stamp of approval, making sure that we had the same message with the other apostles and making sure that we were all on the same page. And they said, we're there. So that's the kind of the background of leading up to chapter 2. Um, if you want to take your Bibles out, we'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Galatians 2, 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the revelation and set before them though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission for even a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they, were, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted to those to the, with the gospel to the circumcised, for he worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised, also through me for mine to the Gentiles. 
And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas, Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So, it's a really important passage that we see here, and specifically him bringing up this whole topic of circumcision. And I think before we get into the nitty-gritty of this, I think it's important to to understand um, the rite of circumcision as what we call an Old Testament ceremonial law. So we often make this distinction that in the Old Testament there were these, all these ritual laws, these clean laws, these cleansing laws that governed Israel as a nation, as God's special people. And so we, see, we, often, we often make this distinction between the moral law, the ceremonial law, and the civil or political law. Laws, and it's just helpful to, to kind of think of this. So, like that, these ceremonial laws, like circumcision, they were not what we think of the moral principles of the Old Testament, like the like the Ten Commandments, which we would say are still binding to us as Christians, like lying and murder and not committing adultery. All of those things would be under what we would say the moral law or the moral principles that are still binding. But there were all these detailed descriptions about food and dress and all these other daily practices that governed them and how and what made them clean or unclean. And they also had ones that governed their social or political ethical life. And all of these things we, we can't really make those neat distinctions as we go through the Old Testament because they're all combined in some way. So when we go through it, it's, it's, we often find things we can learn from it. But these two right here, they were all enwrapped in the whole way that they related as, as a people to God and to the other nations. And when we think of the ceremonial laws, they were often things that made them acceptable to come into the worship of God in the temple. And they were called the clean laws. And under that entire code, Gentiles, basically anyone who's not of Jewish birth, everyone else, all the nations, are unclean. We are unfit, to, in the Old Testament laws, to be in the presence of God unless we're circumcised and we adopted the entire Old Testament codes for daily living. So Gentiles would have to come in and, and adopt all those things to be clean and before, in the presence of God. And um, I think that it's just like it's important to, to think about these things as we're going through, because this is the context for what Paul is saying. They, and these, these ceremonial laws had two really practical purposes. They first, they, they helped to make the Jewish people, the nation of Hebrews, very distinct. It, it separated them. And what we think of the term holy, holy is being cut out and set apart. They were separated from not being assimilated by all these idol-worshiping nations who, who were entirely surrounding them and constantly tempting them with worshiping all these other deities and idols. Um, so that cultural purpose is what made it hard for the Jews to even come into any kind of partnership or any kind of marriage or any of these things with unbeliever Gentiles. And so these rules were boundary markers that distinguished them not just ethnically, but culturally and politically. And they were were specially revealed laws for this nation. Um, and the second thing that we see is because it, this, this, these things are showing 
that God is holy, that he's a holy God. So it not only separated Israel as a people, making them holy, but it was specifically because God was saying, I'm going to be in your midst, I'm going to be your people. And in order to do that, you have to recognize my holiness. Otherwise, you will be burned away. Otherwise, you'll be struck down. Because I am a holy God. And in order to come into my presence, you have to see how, we're, how, uh, how sin has affected us in guilt, in our shame, in our corruption, in the decaying of the body, in the decaying of all these things. And so we had to, they had to go through all these things in order to be allowed into God's holy presence. Um, does that make sense? Any questions about that before we... So circumcision was a part of that. Circumcision was given to Abraham and then as, as the sign of being in the covenant community, but then it was also brought into all of Israel. And circumcision was like the very first thing that set the Israelites aside. Um, and right now we see this huge transition, as we'll get to later, where these things are fulfilled. The things that they pointed to, the things that these were picturing, namely our uncleanness and God's need to bring someone to make us clean. These things are being fulfilled and in Jesus Christ. And so all we don't the thing that makes us holy, the thing that makes us clean is Jesus alone. And the struggle was now that those things are those things were so ingrained in the Jewish mindset and they didn't want to let them go. They didn't want to let these things go um, and make the unity that people had not in Christ but in these other ceremonial and civil laws. Um, so that's just the backdrop. Um, that's, the, that's the tension that's going on here with this understanding of circumcision. Um, and so Paul is coming in here and he's bringing up this whole discussion of circumcision and he's just kind of just like dropping it in there, making everyone would assume and he assumed that they know what they're talking about. And Paul is coming in and he is overturning a lot of their mindset about these things. So you can, you can imagine that this would make a lot of people upset. Um, and so all these other leaders, these other Jewish leaders are saying, we are the true heirs of what the apostles are doing. And Paul is coming in and he's disrupting what the Jews have done for thousands of years. So, like, we're in continuity with the Old Testament. We're the ones who actually have the Bible on our side. Paul, he just had the beginning of it. Um, and so, that's the context. Paul is coming in and he's saying that's why he's defending his ministry in this way. Um, but from what we've learned so far, if Paul received this revelation from Christ, if he did not receive it from man, why do, we, why do you think that he even bothered presenting it to the, to the leaders in Jerusalem in verses 1 and 2? Um, what, would, what do you think would the point of that would be? At first glance, it could look like that he's afraid that he might have gotten his message wrong. Um, but what did, we, what did we read from last week that kind of really disproves that? If we look back uh, at chapter 1, he's not a man-pleaser, and he received the revelation directly from Christ. And, but what, thinking of the dynamic, um, it's... He didn't go to Jerusalem to get authorization, as it were, or to, or, or to get approval in the sense that he had to bring his message into line with what they were saying. Um, 
And I think that's, that's impossible for several reasons. First is because he received that revelation from Jesus. And he, he wasn't going to be a man-pleaser and just change it to the status quo of all these people, what they were trying to get him to change it to. Um, in chapter 1, we read that he, he didn't consult any man or any apostle about this message, but he received it from Christ. But why would he would then go and then consult with the apostles about this message and his mission if they didn't send him? Um, I think that we see that in, where is it? In verse, uh, in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, he says, he went to these people in order to make sure that he was not running or had not run in vain. So he had been preaching this message for probably 14-some years. And he's writing this and saying that there's a possibility that he's, his ministry might have been in vain. Um, not because his message was wrong or that he had changed his gospel message, not because the apostles were teaching something different. Um, No, he was recognizing that these false teachers were coming in and disrupting all the people that he had just converted. They had disrupted all the people that he had just converted. So he had to go to these apostles and all these people in Jerusalem in order to basically say we're on the same page to refute all those false teachers. Does that make sense? So he's going there and he's saying, like, if these apostles um, can't verbally, publicly proclaim the same thing that I'm saying and saying we're on the same page, then the Judaizers will, will have their foot, foot in my church and they will say, well, we're with, we're with Peter. You know, we're with James. And they will cause a division in the church. So he's not going now to just make sure he had the message right. He was going to have everyone publicly say, we're on the same side. So that's a big difference. Like He's not going to get approval in that sense but he's going to say, okay, we need the church to speak about this issue because there's all this division that's happening and I don't want to lose all these Christians to these false teachers. Um, He wanted to make sure that his churches were sound in the gospel teaching and this was the only way he could start disproving the falsehood that they were bringing in, that that he was not in line with the Jerusalem church. Um, And that's kind of why, in this startling thing that we read about, he brought Titus to Jerusalem. Um, Titus was a Greek, and they said he was uncircumcised. Why do you think that that is such a big thing? If he was uncircumcised and he was going to the Jerusalem church. Um, just in the context of what we were saying before, why would that be such a big deal? Because maybe they would have made him get circumcised if, yeah. if they were really believing what was going on. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. They, Paul, in some sense, was being, he was being very forward. He wasn't, he wasn't like, oh, let's talk about the gospel in this hypothetical world where we're not confronted with flesh and blood people and real problems and issues. Let's actually get someone who's of a different race, who everyone knows is Greek and not circumcised. And let's bring him in and force the issue out in the, in the public so everyone can see what's going on. So... Titus is brought in as a test case. It's like, if we're thinking about it in like maybe in America, if someone was trying to, if we think of the racial issues of our country, 
and they really wanted to have unity with someone, it's like bringing them in and having the Lord's Supper with people of a different race and desegregating churches. Like that would that is like yeah, we can talk about how we're united to this church and that church, and, but are we in the same pew? Um, are we having the Lord's Supper together? Are we in table fellowship with them? So that's kind of like how what he actually did. He just literally went and got someone who, in the cultural mindset of everyone, was unclean. Maybe even the apostles. They were kind of like, oh man, I don't know what to do about this. But and it forced them to say, okay, this is what the gospel says, so what are we going to do about it? Um, and they did not insist on Titus getting circumcised for having that, that fellowship. And so this was proof that Paul is bringing out to these Gentiles that the, that the apostles themselves did not require Titus to be circumcised and go through the ceremonial cleansing to be a part of the church. Um, the Jerusalem church said, no, we're not going to add anything to what makes us clean besides Christ, faith in Christ alone. And that is where we have our unity. So it's not only the basis of us being clean, but it's the basis of our unity as well. Um, any questions or any thoughts before we... Does that make sense so far? Like why, why Paul would even bring Titus in? And why that's just kind of like a, that's just like a proof positive of that he's on the same page. Um, and some of the implications of that. What are the implications of that? I think that these, it really shows us something really powerful. That even in the Old Testament, these cleansing laws, these ceremonial laws, these civil laws, and even the moral law, um, they were designed specifically to show how impossible it was to become clean and holy before God, before a holy God. Those things were never the point. They were never the object themselves that were important. Circumcision wasn't the point. The ceremonial laws weren't able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Um, the author of the Epistle of the Hebrews says that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings. These external regulations applied until the time of the new order. So these things were good. These ceremonial laws were good in the Old Testament only because they pointed to Jesus. Um, they never were the points themselves. They were all foreshadowing how God would have to make us clean and holy. Because if, you, if these things could make you holy, you should only have to do them once. But what do you, what do you, what do you see in the Old Testament? It's like you're constantly having to sacrifice. You're constantly having to wash. You're constantly having to do all these things. And they could never make your conscience clear before God and make you not guilty. God was saying, for a time, I'm going to have these things until the Messiah comes. And so you can see, Paul is going to get to this later, that when Jesus came on the scene, these things had to go away. Not because he was abolishing them or they were evil or bad, um, but because he was fulfilling all the things that they were doing. And to try to have these ceremonial laws at the same time as Jesus would be to say you're rejecting Jesus. These ceremonial laws were fulfilled in Christ who alone makes us clean. And so the acceptance of Titus by Jewish believers was an illustration that we become spiritually clean and acceptable 
no longer through deeds and rituals or ceremonies, but because Christ underwent the circumcision for us. He was completely cut off on the cross for us. He lived the perfect righteous life and the moral law for us. He related to God and his neighbor perfectly. And so to, to try to keep try to do these things as a means of staying in fellowship with God was saying that Christ didn't do it. Christ was not enough. And it would be a complete rejection of uh, what Christ came to do. Um, so in light of that, what, why then would Paul, what would be at stake then in this meeting in Jerusalem? How might the truth of the gospel be lost as we re- read in verse 5? That the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. He says, to them we do not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Um, just imagine how bad things could have been if this meeting didn't happen that way. Um, what was at stake if the Jerusalem church didn't side with Paul? Yeah, they would not have been unified around Christ and they would have instantly brought in something that would have undermined the gospel. Um, you know, I mean, the, the apostles are just like, were just like us. They were, they were human beings who were sinful and fearful. And Paul probably feared that these men might not stand up to the false teachers. These people had a, uh, these false teachers probably had a lot in common, culturally, politically, religiously, in so many ways, with the apostles. Yes. Yes. Right. No, that's a, that's a great great example. The Lord really had to push the apostles and the church into uncomfortable situations where they had to bump up against people not like them and be confronted with the reality that they hadn't really fully understood the implications of the gospel and how radical it was. And so the Lord had to throw Cornelius into Peter's life um, in order for Peter to get it, uh, in order for Peter to really understand that the gospel was going, going to go to the Gentiles as well. That's a great example. So you never know. Like It's, it's very easy for us to think like, oh, the politics of the church. It's very easy for us to think of the fear of man, to be man-pleasers, and to, like, well, we on paper, yeah, we have the gospel down. Like, we really have the gospel down. We have these great confessions. We have these great documents. We have such a great history and a tradition that defends the purity of the gospel. But that doesn't mean anything Paul is showing when push comes to shove if we're not able to stand up with our fellow brothers and sisters and be united around the gospel in real life, in practical practicality. Um, so that's like, that's what, that's, Paul was afraid that like, yeah, they might on paper sign off on the gospel, but the fear of man is just so easy and so subtle that we'll be like, oh, well, the church doesn't really talk about that stuff. We don't really get into that. Um, we shouldn't talk about race. We shouldn't talk about X, Y, or Z, or caring for the people that God has put into our churches and our lives. Um, that, that fear of man and losing political power is so pervasive today, and I think it's exactly the dynamic that you saw in the early church. Think about, like, if you think about the early church, 
the Jews hated the Christians. And the Roman Empire, the massive empire at the time, they had this okay deal with the Jewish people that they could, they could in some sense, almost self-govern, almost keep their ceremonies, their temple, and all their worship practices if they got in line. So if you imagine all these Christians, they were now going through and saying these radical things that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And we can't worship God and mammon. We can't worship God and, and, and all these other things. And so the Jewish people, they were angry at the Christians because they were ethnically Jews, but then overturning the whole system that they had with the Roman Empire. So there was immense political pressure for the Christians to conform to Jewish standards in order to be politically acceptable. Does that make sense? Like they, there was enormous, so that, that persecution wouldn't break out and the Roman Empire wouldn't come down on this cult following Christos, you know, following Jesus. So there was enormous political pressure in society for them to stay and seem like the Jews, for the Christian Jew, ethnically Jew, to look and be ceremonially like the Jewish people. And I think that that pressure exists today, and that fear of man, that political power of trying to stay safe is so easy and so easy for us to be like, well, we, we agree with the gospel on paper, but you know, politically or socially, we're going to not stand with the people that Jesus stands with because we don't want to you know, rock the boat or get persecuted. And I, and I think that Paul recognized that. And he was like, there's a chance that these leaders might not stand up to the false teachers. Um, and Paul is saying that the very truth of the gospel is at stake. And we probably, the church would have probably collapsed if, if these Judaizers got their way and the Jerusalem leaders didn't stand up for the gospel. We would not have the pure gospel today. That's, that's the scary reality, that the fear of man can easily just come in. But the Lord graciously allowed them to see, as Paul said, the, the grace that he had been given. And they instantly recognized it, and they confirmed it. Um, these false teachers were jealous of the freedom that we have in Christ. And they wanted to creep in and try to sneakily come in and, you know, say all these different things like, oh yeah, we, we're just preaching the gospel as well. You know, we're saying we're preaching the same thing. Um, but we're just, we're not, we're not really adding to the gospel. We're just saying, that in order to get by under the Rome of, under the radar of Rome and not be persecuted, we need to have these Gentiles act like us and look like us to be safe. Um, and, but really, at their heart, they feared the freedom that the gospel brings. They feared, like, wow, this is going to lead to licentious living. This, this is going to lead to all kinds of problems if we don't come down with legalistic and cultural laws that these people have to abide. Um, Paul's opponents were coming in and saying, you know, yeah, maybe not all Jewish people are Christians, but in order for you to be a Christian, you must now be like a Jew. And Paul is saying that this is, this gospel is for every culture, for every race, race and ethnicity, and it can't be tied down to these cultural things that only were shadows pointing to Christ. Um, and so it was really a brilliant, 
it was a really brilliant move for Paul to just to go right to Jerusalem, um, even though it was frightening and probably really risky. It probably he probably could have lost everything, and he might have been the lone ranger and not have any churches and not have any supporters. And he was really risking everything on that very thing. His whole ministry as an apostle was being put onto the table. The Judaizers were coming in through all his churches and spreading this false teaching, and he was putting himself out there, trusting that the Lord would work and open their hearts. And so if he had not done this, the unity of the church could have been split and at a very early stage, and two very different religions would have emerged ultimately. One that really showcased and believed the gospel, and then one that was a very Jewish cultural gospel. Um, and yet it was an amazing thing that, the God, that God didn't abandon his church. He didn't abandon us, but he protected the truth so that you and I could get this message 2,000 years later. That's pretty remarkable that the Lord has always, maybe even in a small remnant, we have no, I mean, who knows? You know, I mean, in the American church, it can be very easy to be discouraged at the sign of things, at how bad the teaching can be in the world around us and how bad the church can be at actually keeping the unity in the gospel. Um, but even here at the beginning stages when the gospel had just come into the world 15, 20 years after Jesus died and already schism and heresy was coming in. But the Lord was faithful to his people and who was promised that he would spread the gospel to all the world, to all the nations, and the gates of hell would not prevail against her. Um, that is something that we can be really thankful for. So as we think about it, um, this freedom that we have in Christ, in what ways... And maybe in your own life or in what you've seen, does the gospel give us freedom that maybe normal religions that are about earning your salvation really don't give you? Um, just to make it as practical as possible, like what are some of the things that you have seen in your own lives that with this freedom that we have in Christ? I mean, the big thing that, just as an example, as we're thinking about it, you know, it's this cultural freedom. Um, moralistic religions oh, are always pressing us in to adopt, you know, very specific rules and regulations for dress and behavior and things that are very much situated by that culture. Um, things that if you remember the, the, what we said about the author of the Hebrews, things that might outwardly make us look holy and clean, but they have no power to clean the conscience. And they're actually kind of easy to obey. When we create all these human rules that are like not God's moral perfect standard, they're kind of like easy to obey and we're able to say, oh yes, I'm, I'm able to keep that law. I can dress and look like this certain way. Therefore, I can be proud. Um, they're very specific. They're doable and clear. I remember too. Um, you spoke the first. I think the first time we met about you, you had asked a question, and she had said about feeling like things that we have to do. Yes. Mm. Yeah.
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think like a great example of like that tension is like like the Pinterest mom. Yes. Or like or 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 like just Instagram like worthy life. Like Facebook really and, and like we're we're on we're on display 24/7 with our lives. More more and more and more and more. I I think that Maybe in previous generations, when cult, when cities were smaller and people, everybody knew each other, and and there, everyone was their life was really known and on display. Now that that doesn't exist, where we're much more fragmented and kind of separated. But now social media and other things like that have made that kind of shame culture happen again. Has come about. Right. It's very easy to doctor it up. Yeah. Yeah. And and we're we're setting up a culture of comparison. Yes. We're setting up a culture like where moms feel and 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 wives and dads everyone feels this immense pressure to measure up um, to all our culture's new ceremonial laws. Like that's that's really what they are. Is like, if you're going to be a good mom, you have to have this, you know, your meal done at five before when the husband come home and all the kids looking great and all an Instagram worthy, um, or we have to like say all the right things politically and be on the right things and virtue signal and say the right things in front of everyone so they can know that I'm against this evil and that evil, and they're they're all cultural things that actually miss the freedom that we have in Christ. Um, one of our my previous professors would say that Facebook is like the new salvation by works that we're constantly having to measure up to. And it's this, this constant pressure that's, that's destroying us inside and not giving us the peace that the Lord gives us because in some way, it's not the impossible law of God of be perfect as I am perfect. They're very specific. They seem like they're doable. They seem clear of don't do this, don't dress this way, don't go to these movies. Um, you have to be the perfect spouse or perfect work worker with a perfect political agenda, and that's really toxic. Like that, there's no actual way to have peace at the end of the day. Those things just build up the anxiety inside of our hearts, don't, don't they? And that ultimately, like we, we are a very religious society. I think the fact that we're secular means that we don't think we're religious, but we have countless ceremonial laws by we th- who we think is in the in-group and in the out-group, whatever subculture we're a part of, whether we're Christians, Republican, Democrat, um, whatever it is, we have all these new ceremonial laws that disrupt the freedom that we have in Christ. Um, so the gospel not only leads to a cultural freedom, but another thing I was saying is that it leads to real psychological, emotional freedom, doesn't it? It's immense. Uh, the cultural things are just masking the psychological turmoil that's in our hearts. And we think if we keep doing those things, it might not be circumcision for us, or the ceremonial laws, or, wa- or washings, um, but we have all these other things that this Busyness that we confuse for holiness. Yes. It, is that it? Was what the podcast was oh, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. We we really are afraid of slowing down and being silent before God. Um, we can even be busy doing things for the church. I think I think I think I'm guilty of that. 
I think a lot of people are just guilty of that, being busy for the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with that, but we can confuse that with really communing with the Lord, where we're actually at peace with him. I think that's what we brought up last week, if you remember last week. Paul went out in the wilderness to be alone. He didn't go to just go study more. He, he went to commune with God. So, and that's just indicative of what it means to be a Christian. He not only received this revelation and this gospel, but he went out to commune with the Lord and, and, and then commune with the apostles and with the church. And that's really the tension is like, we can be so busy doing things for God, going to school, going to work, being a spouse, being a Christian, that we actually never get to commune with a God. And that is the thing that gives us peace. That is the thing that makes us stable and give us that psychological, emotional freedom um, that gets us off the treadmill of constant guilt and insecurity. Um, That doesn't free us from not obeying the moral law or the Ten Commandments. Paul will go on to say, showing how the fruit of the Spirit, love, really is a fulfillment of all of the moral law. And that's what Christ is working into us. Um, We're not free from that, but we're free from the law as a system of salvation. Any kind of law, human law, cultural law, we're freed from these ceremonies and we're freed even from the moral law as a means of salvation, of securing our hope. And so when, when we have that freedom in Christ, it's actually a freedom for the first time. Just like, wow, I'm made holy and cleansed by the blood of Christ alone. And I don't have to just be on that treadmill. But I can like be at peace and silent with the Lord. Um, and so we want to, when we commune with Jesus, that's how we become like Jesus. Out of gratitude out of thanksgiving for what he's done. Um, and that's really the, the difference of motive. Unless you obey God's law from grace and gratitude, you are in slavery. That's what Paul is saying. The freedom that we have in Christ, unless if we're doing it out of slavish kind of fear, that God is just going to get out the book and like, oh, you didn't have your devotions this morning or you didn't work enough at church. Um, You're not the mother or the father or the brother or the sister or the son or daughter that you should be. If, If you think that God is this harsh taskmaster, that means that our hearts are still in slavery to this Judaizing understanding of the gospel. Any any questions or thoughts about that? I just think it's yeah. so much easier to follow those three laws yeah. in Christ. So I think that I mean to make those salvation rather than yeah. just looking at him. Yes. No, it, it it is hard. I think we're all wired for law. We're, we're all wired to do. Um, but sin has, has made us want to do that for selfish reasons. I think, I think like if you think of the, the story of the prodigal son, um, it's actually the story of the two, two brothers. And if you think of the older brother, at the end of it, his brother, if you remember the story... His brother wastes away his father's inheritance. He, he's immoral and he basically ends up in the gutter and he comes back and the father is just overjoyed and he runs out to him and he brings him back into the family before he could even repent. Um, but the older brother is outside the house. He doesn't even come in. He doesn't even come into the kingdom house of the father. And he's just like, he's pissed because he knows that the father is killing his fattened calf 
because the brother squandered his inheritance, so everything that the father has is going, supposed to be the older brother's. So the older brother is pissed because the father is spending his inheritance on his jerk younger brother, you know? And the older brother is like, you never did this for me. I'm here at home being the faithful one slaving for you. And I didn't get this. Um, and that that is really... It's so easy. Like they're doing that, that was the older brother. He was doing everything perfectly, but the motive was like thinking that, that our father is a harsh taskmaster and we're slaves in his house. And the and and nothing could be further from the truth. You know, nothing could be further from the truth. And that, and that's what the gospel is freeing us from. Um it's freeing us from having to obey God out of that fear, from that emotional, psychological treadmill. Um, and that is what these false teachers are bringing in, that's other gospel, to destroy that freedom. See if we have much time. Um, so, what are what are some other ways that we can think of today that what are common ways that people today are constantly trying to lose the freedom that we have in Christ and add to the gospel? We name some of those things. Um, but I think it's just good to just good to think about that. Um, what are some what are some way that maybe churches our churches tend to do this just to kind of get it down to our level and in, in our churches like what are some of the ways that different types of Christianity might add either to beliefs or distinctions that really bear down on our unity in Christ think that they're definitely right i mean i i love i grew up with all these old baptist hymns and we would sing baptist stuff like hymns and have sings all the time where we just and i love that and i still go home and like and i, and I love all the old classic hymns and but the danger i think like that i even see in my own heart is like to to confuse and think that all those things those cultural ceremonial things just dropped out of heaven and they're not cultural and they're not things that they're not bad in themselves but when they're elevated to the standard of you need to have this in order to be a true church you need to have these things in order to be holy and for your worship to be acceptable that's like that's definitely a way that we confuse the cultural manifestation of the church at one time and place which isn't bad. We can do those things, but when they when we think that that's the only way that the church has to look in order to have holiness, like that's definitely a way that we can add to the gospel. Um, that we insist on the church must be doing those things in order to be real. That's definitely a huge issue. Um, I think another one is like speaking in tongues. Like I think a lot of a lot of churches think that you're not a Christian if you don't have the gifts, these sign gifts, and that's another that's a whole other debate. But whether those things are around, um, 
But there are all kinds of things that we do to make... You, you, there's, a, there's a level one Christian, and then there's like a nominal second citizen Christian. Like if you really want the blessing, you have to be up here and doing these things. And there's all kinds of ways that we do that. Um, maybe it's like having the most pristine doctrine. Like you have to have the best understanding of predestination in order to be a top-tier Christian. You know, um, you have to have the best understanding of exactly the mechanics of how everything works out with, do- with the doctrine of justification in order to be a real Christian. Um, and it's not to say that those things are bad, but I but not everyone has to be a hardcore theologian. I I can drive my car without being a mechanic and knowing how everything has to work and function, and that's okay. Um, not everyone has to be a theologian, and knowing all those things, you can have a wonderful relationship with the Lord, communing with Him, without knowing all the nuts and bolts of all those kind of things. Studying those things can be great, great assurances for us, but we don't have, we, we can't make that second tier, like you're first class citizen, second class citizen kind of thing. Um, that's instantly how we show that our unity no longer is around Christ, but what we know about Him, or what we're doing on top of that. Um, so, we all have these idols that we functionally bring in that we add to Jesus that we think are essential to being happy or joyful before Him. Um, and I think we're, we're going to explore that a lot more later on in the course, but we're out of time for the, today. Any, any questions or thoughts before we, we close or comments? Anything that struck you? Yep. He was um, really well educated. He's being sent to all these places. A lot of them aren't very well educated. Yep. Some of them are Jewish. Mm-hmm. And instead, the one ministering to the Jews is Peter, who was a terrible Jew. He was a fisherman, so he's constantly uh, dealing with uh, dead animals. Yeah. He's constantly unclean. Mm-hmm. And he's the one sent to the Jews. He wasn't educated. He didn't know scriptures as well as Paul did. Mm. And I think that, um, I don't know, that kind of strikes me because it's saying um, in the sense that your your ministry, your reach can be to anyone, yeah. not just those like you, mm. those who are the complete opposite of you. Mm. And because we share the gospel of Christ together, yeah. we, can, we can grow together. Mm-hmm. We don't have to be separated out by our profession or our background. Mm. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, we we touched on a little bit of that last week and, and talking about like how he's even showing like how he went to the end to the zenith of all these things and it still couldn't make him right with God for Paul, you know? He was like the best of the best of the best with honors, you know? And and that, and that's great. And the Lord overturned all those things and made his ministry to to Gentiles. Um, that's a beautiful picture of the gospel itself. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, any other thoughts? We'll close in, in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for today and we thank you for allowing us to come together and hear your word. Um, we thank you for allowing us to think about the implications of your gospel and what Paul's ministry and how he defended it, even in the midst of so much fear, even in the midst of so many problems that could have happened. He was willing to do this, and so we are benefiting from that. We thank you, Lord, for that. And we pray, Lord, that we would allow us to recognize the ways that we add to your gospel, whether as we relate to you or to each other. Um, 
And so we ask that you would work those things into our hearts and allow us to get off that treadmill and give us, again, the joy that we have in Christ. And we do that, we ask that as we go to worship today, that we would be nourished and strengthened because of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.